the feeling I get when I'm doing something that's creative and creative is not just limited to the creative arts, but, you know, negotiating a, a good deal is create is being creative, you know, um, helping uh, someone who works with you succeed is being creative, you know, no matter what the activity is, I enjoy that, that feeling of action and activity. And I think that that that's what uh, um, keeps me motivated. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saber. Hi, my name is Jerry Saber and you're listening to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. This is the podcast where every week I interview the people making a difference in how we use and perceive plant-based products and who are pushing the growth of the plant-based industry. So if you're vegan or plant curious and you wanna know more about the brands you love and the people behind them, this is where you can listen to their stories and how they got to where they are. And this is also the podcast for you if you're simply looking for inspiration and new ideas that will help you get further and be more, both in business and in life. So my guest today is both a vegan and an entrepreneur, although he is not a vegan entrepreneur or active in the plant-based space. But you might have read an article of his that was published a couple of weeks ago on entrepreneur.com. It was titled, What Traveling as a Vegan Has Taught Me About Business Negotiation. I really loved it. And judging by the number of shares it got, a lot of other people did as well. So I looked up the author, Jeffrey Sass, and I realized he's got heaps of business experience and stories to share. So I'm really happy that he's joining me on the podcast today. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. It's uh, truly a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for joining me. Um, I don't know if this is your first podcast on the guest seat, but you've done this in, in the past as a host, right? Yes, I've, I've been a host of podcasts. I've produced podcasts. I've been a guest on podcasts, but never to discuss, you know, plant-based issues or, or my veganism. So it's certainly a first in that regard. Well, we're, we're going to make it, you know, kind of a mix of your business experience, because I think you have plenty of lessons to share that, that apply to any business, regardless if it's not plant-based or plant-based, and specifically how your veganism applies to that. But before we get started with that, I just want to give a bit of background and ask you about yourself, like who's Jeffrey Sass in a nutshell? <laughs> in an in a nutshell is I belong in a nut house, not a nutshell, <laughs> but um, that's okay. So I think you know first and foremost, you know I'm I'm a dad. I have uh, three kids who are grown now, but still, you know once a dad, always a dad. And um, and I'm always been a marketer. So as my career has traversed many industries from entertainment to technology. Um, but I've always leaned toward um, being on the marketing side. I always consider myself a pretty creative person, um, and I've always had creative pursuits throughout my career. So I would say I'm a kind of a creative marketer, dad, all around uh, bon vivant. <laughs> and a vegan, of course, as well, but we'll, we'll get into that a little later right now. Um, I'd like to know how you got started down your business path because you you started in the entertainment business, right? That's correct. So what, yeah. what took you there? Well, I went when I went to college. You know, I studied uh, creative writing and theater, and um, right out of college, was fortunate enough to get a job working for a small production company in New York, a company called Satori Entertainment, and um, really started out um, learning a lot about the film distribution uh, industry, and also getting the chance to produce a talk show on cable television in the early days of cable television called Celebrity, um, which was hosted by a, a former DJ who was well known in the 70s and 80s, Allison Steele. And so I got a chance to, to get involved in the entertainment industry very early on. And then, you know, a career, I think, is, is, is like a journey. It's kind of like the Beatles song, a long and winding road. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of going with the flow, um, I, I stayed in the entertainment industry. I stayed with that company for five and a half years. Um, then I went off uh, on my own for a while and uh, produced a, a, a children's animated special that was on CBS about the Statue of Liberty and wrote a few screenplays and then ended up working for a company called Troma, which is in the uh, kind of action horror, low budget um, film industry. And um, while I was working at Troma, we ended up launching a 
Saturday morning cartoon show um, called The Toxic Crusaders. And um, I was a, already pretty much of a geeky guy and, and very much a gadget person and very interested in the introduction of you know, the early computers and the IBM PC and all that stuff. So when I was working on the, the cartoon, The Toxic Crusaders, we made licensing deals with companies like Sega and Nintendo for video games. And I became very fascinated by the um, convergence of traditional entertainment and interactive entertainment and ended up um, doing a deal with a company here in Florida where I'm based now called Game Tech that was in the video and computer game business. And actually I was representing the PBS show Reading Rainbow and had made a deal for um, re for Game Tech to make interactive educational CD-ROMs based on Reading Rainbow, and I would come down to visit with them in Florida every once in a while, and I was fascinated by what they were doing and what was happening with the introduction of CD-ROMs, and eventually ended up leaving New York, moving down to Florida, and joining that company and getting involved in the computer game industry um, um, for a number of years. Yeah, <laughs> if we can just stay with the animated shows, because I, I looked up the, the Toxic Crusaders on, on YouTube, <laughs> Because, you know, I, I was growing up in the 80s and I think that was one of the shows that did not make it across the, the Atlantic. But um, it definitely looks definitely looks along the line of what was being produced then. But um, also it's got a pretty interesting spin to it. it. It seems a bit more mature, like you've got these kids who get mutated into <laughs> toxic crusaders and they're kind of grotesque really but how how was that cartoon how did it come out yeah so it was it was actually um a spin-off of a what was originally an r-rated adult movie called the toxic avenger which is the story of a young lowly mop boy who falls into a vat of toxic chemicals and then turns into this hideously deformed creature of superhuman size and strength and he's he's kind of a goofy monster that's more of a superhero than a monster and the toxic crusaders took that character and turned him into a saturday morning cartoon and and associated him with some other um crazy characters that also had various superhuman powers and it did have kind of an environmental message to it so this was um 1990 91 when it came out and it was just after the peak of the teenage Mut mutant ninja turtles and around the same time there was also captain planet which also had kind of an environmental message so there was this kind of wave of cartoons that although they were very action-oriented um you know, um, they still had sort of an underlying uh, positive environmental message and and, you know, a lot of the jokes and a lot of the storylines involved, you know, positive environmental messages, even though it was wrapped around supervillains and violence and action, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like I said, I was growing up around that time. So that was my Saturday and Sunday mornings. And, and I really remember, like you mentioned, Captain Planet, Ninja Turtles, it all kind of revolved around either radioactive toxic waste or fighting fighting supervillains who were polluting the the environment so I, I think that was really cool and i don't know what's happening in cartoons right now on, on account of not having any kids of my own but um <laughs> it, is this still present in in any form you know i haven't excuse me also as, as i while i have kids they're all grown right now i have a, a young uh two and a half year old grandson but he's um He's into Star Wars these days, a lot, a lot of the, all of these Star Wars films. So I haven't really followed the, the current state of the uh, Saturday morning cartoon to see if those kinds of uh, environmental messages are still there. But I think, you know, cartoons always have been and will continue to be a great way to actually um, share messages that are much deeper than what the surface uh, might might appear to be. And I think that's always been true about animation and probably always will be. Yeah. But, well, since you mentioned Star Wars, that's not so bad either. I mean... No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming you're a fan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I've, I've always been uh, been a fan of uh, science fiction uh, in general and Star Wars and Star Trek. I had the opportunity when I was in the video game business to actually work with William Shatner because um, he had come up with... Uh, he had written a book called Tech War, and that book was spun off into uh, uh, computer games, which the company I worked for produced and distributed. So um, I had a chance to spend quite a bit of time actually with uh, 
with uh, Mr. Shatner or Bill or Captain Kirk or however you'd like to refer to him. He's actually a terrific guy, and we had some 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 fun and interesting adventures together doing promotion for the game. That, that's cool. So what um, what made you a fan of sci-fi? You remember? That's a good question. Um, I mean, as long as I can remember reading, I can remember reading science fiction stories, whether it goes back to, you know, Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and some of the classics, uh, you know, right up until, you know, more of the current sci-fi things, you know, like The Martian and uh, um, and other things that have come out more recently. So it's always been uh, a genre that I've enjoyed um, very much. Um, I think I like the creativity of it and the science of it. You know, the, the and we live in a time now that literally, you know, all these things that we read about and dreamed about uh, many years ago are, are coming to be, you know, not quite the flying cars yet of the Jetsons, but we're, we're not that far off. Where are those flying, flying cars? Huh? Yeah, yeah, well, uh... we're not that far <laughs> off. Uh, they introduced last year at CES, there was a flying, you know, a, uh, a drone, a quadcopter, essentially, that was large yeah. enough to to lift a person in it. So that's pretty close. So, um, but a lot of pretty amazing things, including being able to walk into your home now and, and speak and have things happen. You know, I've got my apartment is, you know, I've got Alexa's everywhere and Google home and everything's connected to lights and stereos and TVs. And, you know, you walk in the door and you start talking and things start happening. So that's, that's pretty or, cool. You know, you, you can even pull out a small device from your pocket before you get home and, and tell your home to, to get ready for you. So, as a Trekkie, how how excited were you when when cell phones were starting to become a reality? Well, it was pretty fun because um, you know I was in the movie business at the time, and because we were actually filming on location uh, in a very remote location, we decided to get one of the very first big Motorola uh, cell phones. The, the ones that actually to... came with the suitcase. Yeah, literally, yeah. you had to carry around uh, uh, the battery pack you carried around was about the size of literally three bricks, you know, on top of each other and probably just as heavy. And then the phone was connected with a thick rubber cord. And I had the opportunity to be lugging one of those around with me all the time because we were in the middle of production and I needed it for communications. And then um, when I was working with uh, Bill Shatner and on his tech war game, it was kind of fun because we were at one of the events, um, it might have been the Consumer Electronics Show, we were exhibiting there for the game, and that was the same Consumer Electronics Show where Motorola was introducing the very first flip phone, you know, the, the StarTech uh, flip phone. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google, Google StarTech, S-T-R-T-A-C. Oh, we're we're going to put this into the show notes, definitely. <laughs> And that was kind of the first flip phone, and it was really kind of modeled after the communicator on, on Star Trek. So when we walked by the Motorola booth, and there was Bill Shatner, Captain Kirk, and they were trying to promote this phone that looked like it was right out of Star Trek. So they all went nuts and gathered around him and begged him to hold it and take pictures with it and everything else, and it was really kind of fun. That's that's awesome. So we we got to the point where you are now working in the video games industry and with the um be horror flicks yep. so um what what were your first forays into the mobile industry because you got quite active in in that as well yes um and, and you've done your research jerry thank you um yes yeah, so um the video game industry toward the end of like 1997 kind of hit a little bit of a a downturn um and um you know we were looking for different things to do um, and at the time, we actually did for a little while, we were way ahead of our time, we actually took our game designers and our first-person shooter game engines and started creating virtual reality walkthroughs of um, apartment buildings and houses before they were being built in the Miami market. So we, we called the company VR Tech. I wish we hadn't let that domain name go. That was a good name. Uh, and um, we were doing these you know, first-person shooter-type walkthroughs of actual homes that developers were trying to sell. And it was somewhat rudimentary because we were using these game engines to do it, but it was pretty effective. And actually it was very a very good sales and marketing tool, but it was very cost it wasn't very cost effective because it was still very labor intensive. We had to have our designers, you know, match the design of the house and use the game maps and it took a lot of time. And so it was really it cost us more to do it than what the developers were really willing to pay for it. So that kind of fizzled out and from there 
um, I was involved in launching a company called Barpoint.com, which was an earlier early player in mobile commerce. So back in 99 and 2000, with Barpoint, you could um, enter a barcode number for any product on your mobile phone, and we had distribution on all of the major carriers in the U.S., AT&T, Singular, Nextel, uh, Verizon, uh, et cetera. And if you entered that barcode number right on your phone, you'd get back comparative uh, shopping information, pricing, reviews, and in some cases, even the ability to purchase an item from a store right from your phone You know, back in 2000. So we were way ahead of our time, very good technology, very very good distribution. For any younger listeners uh, who are wondering why you couldn't just take a picture of the barcode, that was way <laughs> before cell phones had cameras on them, right? 99, That's correct. 2000. There were, there were no camera phones. Um, there was a product from Symbol Technologies, which was a big uh, barcode manufacturer, barcode hardware manufacturer, who um, actually was an investor in Barpoint, where you could stick that in and plug a barcode scanner into certain phone handset so you could actually scan from the phone and we worked very closely with Palm when they had the first Palm Pilots and the wireless Palm Pilots. Um, so it was cool technology but it was way ahead of a time way ahead of our time. We did have some issued patents and we did sell the company and those patents are, are in use today. But it was a little bit early, you know, for users to jump on that bandwagon. Today it's very commonplace as you pointed out. And of course the handsets are much more capable. The networks are much more capable now to do these things that we kind of envisioned back then. But that got me into the mobile space. Um, and then I worked in mobile for a number of years for that company Then we sold the company. And then I worked in mobile entertainment for a company called Mixer, M-Y-X-E-R. And we were there for the, the rise of the ringtone. So at one point when ringtones were really popular, um, Mixer was one of the top websites on the internet where people would go to get ringtones and wallpapers and other mobile content um, for their phone. Um, and that's how I got into the mobile space. And during that time uh, at Mixer, I spent a lot of time uh, speaking uh, at various industry events and panels on mobile marketing and uh, you know, mobile entertainment and, and a lot of stuff related to the mobile industry. So that was in the, uh, what, mid-2000s, mid something like that? It was uh, 1990, uh, I mean, 2007, yeah, 2007 through 2010, 11. So how, you know, how, how was it being in the industry back then? So that was 10 years ago. What were the, what were the usual forecasts of where mobile was, was heading? Well, it was it was growing like a weed back then because the smartphone was just being introduced and, and smartphone growth was tremendous. So, you know, it was a very exciting time to be in the mobile industry because the numbers were just insane. Even at Mixer at our peak, you know, we were getting uh, something like 90 million unique visitors a month, you know, coming wow. to our website just to just to get ringtones and wallpapers, you know. So so it was a really um Exciting and interesting time, uh, you know, because the growth in mobile was was so dramatic, as as you know, suddenly everyone you know had to have their mobile phone, and then the smartphone, you know, took it even further. And of course, you know, even before the iPhone came out, you know, there were a lot of very capable smartphone devices. You know, um, Palm had the Palm Pilot, and they had the Palm Trio. There was a company called Handspring that had some 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 kind of cool smartphone devices. So there was a lot of cool products out there, and then it really became mainstream. You know, when the iPhone came out, and um, and that kind of changed changed the world yet again. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, instead of having to go to a website to download your your ringtones, you would just get them from one centralized iTunes store or, or the Play Store that, that we have right now. Or most of the phones now, too, are capable of taking any MP3 you might have yeah. or any music or audio you have and turning it into the ringtone. But, of course, the real trend now, as I've noticed, is you know you, you, how often do you actually hear a phone ring anymore? Very little. Most everyone has their phone on, on vibrate because they're getting notified you know, in other means, you know, on their on their smartwatches or they're wearing headphones, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the the um, usefulness of a ringtone as it was then is not necessarily the same now. You know, in the early days it was kind of fun. You'd have a different ringtone for everyone who would call you frequently. So, you know, your mom had one ringtone, your wife had another one, your girlfriend had another one. <laughs> you had to make sure you didn't make sure you didn't use the same ringtone for your <laughs> wife and your girlfriend. That would be a problem. I, I have but, to admit that I still have that. Like I've when my wife sends me a message, I get a different notification than if I just get a message from from someone else. So I'm I'm kind of old school there, but I'm 
I'm pretty sure we're close to the time where you simply get an implant in your skull and, and it's going to notify you who's calling you or even what they want to say to you. Absolutely. I mean, Dick Tracy, you know, is here. I have a, a smartwatch. I, I'm a, as I mentioned, I'm a gadget guy, so I've owned just about every smartwatch that has come out for many, many years. And uh, I'm always trying the new ones. And, and now they're really at the point where, you know, you can answer a call and take a call on your watch. And the people on the other end would have no idea that you're talking to them like Dick Tracy from your watch. And uh, it's pretty cool what's happening there. I, I, I'm a fan of the whole wearable space. So now that that was mobile and um, right now you are actually involved with domains. So that's yeah. another you know, it's it's not a huge leap, but it's still it's another shift to to a different kind of industry. So, first of all, what um, what exactly are you doing at Dot Club? Because that's that's yeah, so the company you work with, right? Absolutely, Dot Club. So, so I'm the chief marketing officer, the CMO at Dot Club Domains. So, Dot Club is one of the brand new domain name extensions. As as some people may have seen, if you visit a site like GoDaddy or anywhere you might register domain names, there are now literally hundreds of choices of new domain name extensions. So, instead of just being limited to .com, .biz, .org, and a few others, you now have uh, enormous choice. So, my company. The company I work for, we applied for the rights to Dot Club, C-L-U-B, um, back in January of 2012, and it took about a year and actually millions of dollars to get the rights because other companies also had applied for the rights to Dot Club, and we eventually won those rights in an auction, and that was in June of 2013, and then we launched Dot Club. Uh, in May of 2014, so we're coming up on our third anniversary this coming May, and Dot Club is a great domain name extension because the word club it's short and it's meaningful and it's very global so the word club it has the same meaning all over the world even in China we have we do a lot of business in China and Germany and Japan and Russia club is club all over the world so it's very cool in that regard and club is a great word because it represents passion it represents people coming together around a common interest or a passion so as a domain name that makes it a very good name for lots of different uses obviously if you are an existing club um, then dot club makes good sense and it might even shorten your current domain name because you can move the word club from the left side of the dot to the right side of the dot. Um, but if you're a business that has a subscription model or any kind of a membership model, then club is also a great domain name. And we see lots of entrepreneurs and startups using dot club domains for their businesses, everything from coffee.club, which is a subscription service for great organic uh, um, uh, coffee, um, to games like gear.club, which is a racing game in the iTunes store, um, to blogs, you know, blogs and bloggers who want to express their passion. So there's a blog called um, healthyeating.club, and that's a recipe blog. So there's a lot of different use cases for a domain name that ends in .club. Um, so um, we launched, as I said, almost three years ago. We have about 930,000 registrations around the world. Um, so it's been going very well, and it's, it's been a really interesting business. It's very interesting because it's very global which leads to all the travel I do, which led to me writing the article about how um, traveling as a vegan has presented you know, some challenges, but also some opportunities to, to really learn some things and have some phenomenal meals in sometimes the most unexpected places. Yeah, I, I love the article and that's it's definitely in the show notes as well. But before we get into that, I just got two more questions about the dot club sure. domains that um, I just thought of right now first of all you said you 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 got the rights to the dot club domain so does that mean that any other registrar that is offering dot club domains they essentially in the end it all goes through through you right that's that's correct so the way that works there's an organization called ICANN I-C-A-N-N um, which is the um, Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, and they manage and control the namespace of the Internet. So they they issue the rights to become the registry for .club or any of these extensions, like a company called VeriSign, a publicly traded company. They are the registry behind .com. So we're the registry behind um, .club. 
And what that means is we're like the manufacturer, and then we sell our domain names through a network of resellers like GoDaddy and Namecheap and Name.com and you know anywhere you would go to register a domain name. So anywhere you might register a .club domain name, you're exactly right. Underneath that, we're the manufacturer, so to speak, and we get paid for every one of those registrations, whether you get it from GoDaddy or anywhere else. So we're like the manufacturer of the .club domains. And, and, and our role is more of a marketing and technology company, so we're responsible for building the brand, and my goal as the CMO is to help us build a global brand around .club. And then on the technical side, we're, we're responsible as the registry for that underlying database so that if you, Jerry, went to GoDaddy and registered Jerry.club, I couldn't now go to another registrar somewhere else and also register Jerry.club. The, the second that you register that name, there's a master database that that gets taken off of and that's all managed. And, and we do that through a third-party company that we work with to manage that technical aspect. It is a very technical piece as well. Yes, because that's my, my second question was going to be related to the fact that GoDaddy about a week ago offered me the um, domain name vegan.club for about three and a half thousand dollars. So just wanted to ask you price wise, is it just like with dot coms, the, the more common and popular a name is, the, the higher the price? Yeah, so that, that's a great question, Jerry. So as the registry, the way it works, you know, we set the pricing. So for a regular dot club name, a standard registration, it's about the same as dot com. It'll be somewhere between 10 or $15 a year. Uh, and sometimes they're on sale. So you might see a special promotion, you know, and you, and you could see the first year registration for less than that. And that's for a regular name. So if you were going to get something that's kind of unique or unique to you, it would probably be 10 or $15 a year. Then we also have what are called premium names, where we've set aside certain names, and typically those would be keywords, like a single word like vegan or like golf.club or you know fitness.club. Those would be premium names, and premium names are at a higher price just for the first year. The renewals are always the same, $10 a year, but that first year price on a premium name could be higher, and it could be higher, meaning it could be $50 or $100 instead of $10, or it could be several thousand dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. We sold the name Wine.Club in an auction for $140,000, for example. But we have a lot of premium names that sell, like you pointed out, vegan in the two or $3,000 range. Um, and we also have a program at our website at Get.Club where you can get those premium names and finance it with no interest over five years. So a $1,000 name would only be $16 a month, for example. So for a small business that wanted to use a keyword like vegan.club, didn't want to write a check for $3,000 up front, could actually pay that out over five years, but they'd be using the name as soon as they started the payment. So they could use the name, it's almost like leasing it, and there's no long-term obligation if they change their mind after a year and they don't want to use it anymore, they can stop. So we also have a program like that to make it easy for small businesses to get access to a, a good quality premium .club domain. Well, that's really good to know for anyone who's getting ideas right now of what kind of .club domain they could register, and if it happens to be a premium domain, they can actually go to your website and and just get it on installments. Exactly. This, right? Exactly. Awesome. Now, you were beginning to talk about your um, vegan site. Yes. <laughs> and the article you wrote and what you experienced as a vegan traveling around and what you've learned about it. But how did you actually become a vegan? And how, yes. how long has it been? So I, I started first as a vegetarian. So I, I became a vegetarian um, now close to 27 years ago. So when my, my daughter was born, um, she's my youngest child. So when she was born 27 years ago, my wife at the time, her mom, uh, was a big animal lover. We had dogs and cats and many pets. And, and after Olivia, my daughter, was born, she, my wife at the time said, you know, I really would like to become vegetarian, you know, mostly for animal compassion reasons. And to be honest, back then, she was doing most of the cooking. <laughs> I was running around like a madman in business. And, and the concept of it appealed to me because I, too, you know, loved our animals and, and, and felt, you know, felt that compassion side of it. So I said, I think that's a great idea. And I went along with it. And, and you know, back in the early days, we would go to lots of meetings and, and classes and read lots of books and subscribe to all sorts of, you know, Vegetarian Times and other magazines. And, and 
and it stuck. And and um, we were we're no longer together, but we both you know maintained our our you know vegetarian lifestyle. And then about probably close to 12 years ago now, I would say I decided to you know go vegan and cut out um, cut out dairy and and cut out everything else um, you know. Um, so that I could be vegan. And I did that, you know, obviously the compassion issues persist, but I also did that for health reasons at the time. Even though I was eating a, a healthy vegetarian diet, I still felt every once in a while I would get an upset stomach or I'd get some agita. And I found that once I cut out dairy and once I, you know, became a full vegan, um, that completely stopped, you know, and ne never had any issues like that ever again. And I just felt better in general and more energy and, and I liked it. So it stuck. And so I've, I've been a vegan ever since. So, so 27 years in total, the last 12, uh, 27 years in total as a vegetarian and the last 12 as a pretty strict vegan. Wow. That's, um, pretty good because I think. 12 years ago, I probably thought there might be like five vegans in the entire world or something like that. Well, th there were more than that, but it certainly wasn't um, as fashionable as it might be considered today. And there, there certainly weren't as many products. You know, it was it was a lot harder to shop, you know, at the grocery store. Now I, you can go into a regular grocery store. You know, here we are where I live in Florida. Publix is kind of the the standard grocery store, and even the standard grocery store now has a, a huge selection of, of vegan products, you know, and not just frozen products, but even in, in the produce area and even in the, the cheeses and, and, and everything else. So there's a lot of um, opportunity and choice now. It's certainly a lot easier to find stuff just in your day-to-day -day life than it was when I began. Yeah, and well, being vegan and vegetarian for so long, did, did you find it's changed your world in in any way like personal issues or or business ventures well I, I certainly think um you know from a health perspective at least you know it's a personal choice and i'm not um radical about it meaning that that you know i dine with people who are carnivores and and i allow them to dine in front of me without making a big deal about it i'm not trying to um convert everyone i meet this is a personal choice i i'm and I meant meat, M-E-E-T, by the way, not everyone I meet, M-E-A-T. Um, but uh, it's a personal choice that works for me. I, I think health-wise, it's it's been great. You know, I'm I'm in my 50s and I don't take any medications at all. You know, and most of my peers, um, you know, who have not had a plant-based uh, diet, as I have, are on all sorts of you know prescription medications at this point in their life and you know you know I consider myself although I'm still you know one of the chubbier vegans around because you can still get lots of good uh, vegan pastries and other things that have calories I, I'm generally you know extremely healthy for someone my age and and I feel good you know you know I wake up I sleep well I, you know so I think from a health perspective it's been very good and I think from a you know as I, as I mentioned in the article you know just from a life perspective it's fun I mean it's interesting when I travel it almost becomes a challenge like okay you know, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to find something, um, you know, good to eat? And a lot of times, you know, you can use apps like Happy Cow, which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with, which has been phenomenal all over the world. I've used Happy Cow in Spain and Germany and Russia and all different countries and have found um, good choices using the app. So that's great. But a lot of times, especially if you're having business dinners with other people, you can't necessarily dictate, you know, where you're going to go and you might find yourself um, in a place that wouldn't typically have any vegan choices on the menu. And that's where kind of where I've had my most fun and in some cases some of the best meals. Um, and that's where this whole idea of, of leveraging what I've learned uh, being a vegan uh, for negotiating skills because um, a lot of it really applies to making a business deal with the chef you know, at a restaurant. And, and some of the best, most interesting vegan meals I've had have been at you know five-star steakhouses, you know places that that don't typically serve vegan meals. And what I will typically do in that circumstance is I will tell the the waiter or waitress, you know the server, uh, listen, I'm vegan. Um, please tell the chef that whatever they would like to prepare is absolutely fine with me. I put it entirely in their hands as long as it's vegan. You know, so as long as there are no non-vegan ingredients, the chef can make whatever they want. I don't care. You know, no, no, no restrictions whatsoever other than being vegan. And I found in doing that, you know, sometimes the server will look at me a little bit funny, but they'll go back and relay the message to the chef. And more often than not, the chef 
gets excited about it because when you think about it, especially at a steakhouse, what has that chef been doing all day? You know, they're making the same fillets over and over again, pretty limited menu, the same stuff. And now they're presented with a creative challenge. And I found most chefs, my oldest son is a professional chef, and, and I find most chefs are very creative people. Cooking is very creative. So if you give a creative chef the challenge of, hey, make something vegan, they get to go back into the kitchen, look in the pantry, see what they have, see what they can come up with. And, you know, not always, but most of the time, they go above and beyond and don't just come back with a few steamed vegetables, but come back with some pretty elaborate, interesting meals. I was just in um, Las Vegas last week for a conference and did this technique at, a, at an Italian restaurant. Um, and they came back with something which they called vegan ravioli, but there was no um, pasta. It was actually cabbage wrapped around all sorts of you know vegetables in a very nice spicy, you know, arabiata style uh, tomato sauce, and it was just absolutely delicious. And it wasn't on the menu, and it wasn't anything I'd ever seen before in any menu, quite frankly. You know, ravioli, calling it ravioli, but it was really like cabbage wrapped around vegetables. And it was delicious. It was outstanding. And so so that's been kind of a fun thing. And what also happens, which, which freaks out my um, meat-eating business associates, is almost always that chef, especially if they do something special like that, the chef will come out to the table, come over to me, ask how I enjoyed it. And then everyone else who, you know, ordered the standard stuff on the menu is looking at me like, who, who's he that the chef's coming out to <laughs> talk to him? You know, they never come out and talk to me about my prime rib here. You know, so that's been a lot of fun. And the chefs come out and I always compliment them. And, and um, you know, a lot of times the first inclination might be you go into a restaurant, oh, there's nothing on the menu for me, and you get a little bit upset, and you get a little angry, and maybe you say to the server, you guys have nothing on the menu, what are you going to do? And if you take that attitude, you know, you're not going to get treated the way I've been treated. On the other hand, if you turn it into a little bit of a game and a challenge and are polite and kind about it and give the chef an opportunity to shine – you might be surprised with a pretty spectacular meal. And that's that's been my experience. Yeah, see, this is why I love the, the article so much because even though the topic is definitely not new, I mean, you've got dozens if not hundreds of tutorials and articles written on how to survive eating out as a vegan. I mean, my wife and I have done videos and infographics on, on the topic as well. I've never read something that would be written in your tone, really, and kind of connecting it to to business negotiations as well. So, <laughs> right, that was a really but nice spin think, on it. Yeah, and then that's and that's what good negotiation is, right? Good negotiation is you want it to be a win-win. You want both parties to walk away from the table feeling good. And in this instance, even though the chef had to go out of their way and create something that they weren't planning to create, and maybe use some ingredients that they, that they didn't plan on using. You know, at the end of the day, they came away from it feeling good because they, they created something that was good and enjoyed by the customer. And I, you know, complimented them on it. And, you know, I got a great meal. They had a great experience and everybody wins. So I think there are, you know, a lot of a lot of parallels. And also, just since you mentioned that you're giving the chef a creative challenge, like you're giving them a challenge, but one that they're really suited for to solve. And that's. It's not just business, it's people skills in general. If, if you give people challenges to, to excite and motivate them, that always ends up good in, in my Absolutely. experience. Cool. It's like listening. What you're really doing is, is you're listening to the chef. You're giving the chef a chance to speak and you're listening. And, and listening is, is probably you know, one of the most important you know, negotiating techniques or even relationship techniques that a lot of us, you know, forget about from time to time. And so you have to listen. So instead of just saying, hey, make me some vegetables or do this or do that, I'm saying, hey, make whatever you want, you know, be as creative as you want. My only my only requirement is it has to be vegan. Other than that, I'm fair game, you know, and I, and I will eat whatever you put in front of me as long as it's vegan and I'll enjoy it, you know, and that always works out. Nice. Has there anything else in particular that being vegan has taught you about how you do business or how, how you approach business? Well, I think, I think, you know, not just business. I think obviously it, it requires discipline to stick to any kind of strict diet, whether it's vegan or, or some medical requirements or anything. So that does require discipline. And of course, you know, discipline, once you 
can learn to be disciplined in one area, like your diet, it's, it becomes much easier to try and apply that kind of discipline to other things you do, whether it's your work or, or keeping a clean apartment or you know, dealing with family members or whatever. So I think it certainly helped me become more uh, disciplined than perhaps I was you know, before I was um, following such a strict vegan diet. So I think that's been very beneficial. And, and I think it's just, you know, it's great to have things in life that you are passionate about. And obviously, food is a requirement. <laughs> we need it to live. And so by making food and your diet something that's also important to you that you can be passionate about in terms of being a vegan, in terms of you know the underlying messages of compassion that, that, that are carried with that, I think it, it makes almost every meal different and special because every meal I prepare – whether I prepare for myself or whether I'm at a restaurant, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about the ingredients. I'm thinking about the fact that this is a vegan meal because you have to keep track. You have to look at labels. You have to do that. So it makes it special. So eating and food, consuming food is not just something I do without thought, right? It becomes more thoughtful when you're vegan. And, and I kind of like that. And I think that's a nice um, positive side effect of uh, following following a vegan diet so so you're the one who's uh, preparing the meals now because you said that it, it used to yes. be your your wife back when when your daughter was born yes no now now i, I do most of the the cooking for myself uh, when it comes to to vegan meals absolutely yeah yeah and it's you know it's fun in business talk about business just one other funny story you know when i um was working in bar point we um had some some pretty gung-ho classic business people who worked there you know tall ex-football players you know typical um you know uh typical business sales guys type folks and they would always tease me you know about you know being vegan and and stuff when we go out to eat they'd always you know say i'm when you i'm gonna get you drunk and shove a steak down your mouth you know all sorts of silly stupid things that people are are want to say when they're joking around in business and so it was always a challenge eating with these guys. And then one time we were actually in Seattle, which is a very, very nice uh, vegan-friendly city. And we were a little bit early for our meeting, not early enough to go far, but early enough to get a bite to eat before the meeting. And so big guy, you know, big ex-football player, all right, let's go get someplace to eat. Let's find a place for lunch. And I'm going to pick the place because he was that kind of guy. So we're driving around Seattle, and you, we didn't really know where we were going, and this was – years ago so there were no apps or no yelp or anything and he just saw a sign for a place and i can't remember what the name was but it looked interesting it looked nice it was close by so oh, let's go eat there we're gonna eat there so we go there and we walk in the room and it was a vegan restaurant vegan only right and he had never you know set foot in one before when he we sit down he gets the menu he's like what is this where's the steak you know, was, he you know he couldn't figure it out and i'm i'm laughing right because oh this place is great we'll stay and he's like well i, I can't eat at a place like this and then he looked but we had no time to go anywhere else like it was either eat there at this point or skip lunch and just go right to our meetings and he was hungry so we ate there and he ended up having a, a fantastic meal and after that he didn't uh, tease me quite so much going forward because he reckoned you know he had no idea you know most people think vegan food it's a bunch of vegetables and that's it they don't realize how creative and how many different you know types of, of proteins you can put together and what you can do with with tofu and seitan and, and all these different things and even with vegetables what you can do what you can do with chickpeas and quinoa and all this stuff so until they have an experience like that where they go into a restaurant with a full menu and a very varied menu of all vegan dishes and try some unusual things most people don't realize you know that you could actually eat pretty darn well and uh, and at very nice places and still eat vegan yeah so that was kind of a fun fun experience i, I think we've really really come very far in the last all, even the last five years i would say in terms of of the food that you can get that's completely vegan like i've mentioned this before but i've just been to to a vegan fest here in mexico and they had this taco competition and it was simply amazing to to taste what those chefs were were doing with completely plant-based ingredients yep you no know? but speaking of plant-based because you're a marketer and i really wanted to ask you what what do you prefer or where do you see more potential in the term vegan or plant-based that's a really good question so i'm i'm kind of old school so i've been you know to me I kind of grew up in the world where it was vegetarian and vegan was was pretty common, and this whole idea of plant-based um, is fairly new. Um, so, you know, I 
So personally, I kind of lean toward vegan, but I see more and more, you know, plant-based growing. And I think, you know, certainly for the businesses that are in that field and that are manufacturing plant-based products, I think they're using that terminology as a way to go much more mainstream. And, and with the idea being, I'm not trying to offer my wares just to vegans per se, but I want to present them as, as a plant-based product that's generally healthy for people so that as people move slowly and surely, you know, to consume less meat and more plant-based things in their diet, they can think of, of having plant-based foods and plant-based meals and going to plant-based restaurants without feeling the commitment of going vegan, so to speak, or, 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 or taking on that um, diet or lifestyle full-time. So I think that's probably, as a marketer, that's kind of how I would evaluate the difference between the two, you know, if you're vegan, you're saying I'm, I'm 100%. This is my lifestyle. If you're, you know, eating a plant-based diet, maybe you're doing that for a while. Maybe you're going back and forth. Maybe you're just trying to to kind of wean yourself off of uh, meats over time. So you know, the, the kind of different degrees of it. Yeah. Well, sort of my... one of my recent guests on the show actually used the phrase "plant curious" for for those people who are, <laughs> you know kind of on the fence and kind of eating vegan food a lot but not really willing or wanting to to go a hundred percent in so right yeah i really like that yeah yeah plant curious is good i like i like that and yeah. it's kind of it's kind of fun you know and you want it you want it you want to get people's attention you want to get people i mean ultimately you want to get people thinking and i think the good news is i think a lot more people are thinking about the benefits of a plant-based diet today than ever before and the benefits are much broader than what people used to think. You know, I talked about animal compassion was the impetus, but the reality is as I've gotten older and have become more informed, now one of the side effects of being vegan that I appreciate is the benefits to the environment, you know, and, and, and not contributing to the negative aspects of the cattle industry and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot more to uh, the benefits of following a plant-based diet than just your own individual personal health. But at the end of the day, for it to work, it has to be a personal choice. You have to be comfortable with it. You have to be happy with eating that way. And you have to, you know, make sure you're doing it properly so that you have a healthy diet. You know, in the early days, it was very easy to um, just start eating a very limited diet when you first become a, a vegetarian or first become a vegan because you don't realize all the choices you have. And that's obviously not healthy, you know, to just eat you know, vegetables all the time or just rice or just brown rice or just this, you know, so it's important to have a very varied diet. And I was fortunate, you know, when I started, um, my wife at the time was an excellent cook and also was very, you know, curious and like to research things. So, so she was collecting amazing recipes and trying all different things. And, and so we had a very varied, you know, very varied diet, you know, from early on. So we weren't just limiting ourselves as vegetarians. And I try not to limit myself as a vegan now and, and do have a, you know, a varied diet as much as possible. Yeah, that's um, our, our path was very, very similar. So, but I know that it is a challenge for a lot of people because they're maybe they're not used to, to making food. They do not think of food in that same way. So it's, it's also good to see how technology right now is changing that and just making everything more accessible to people whether it's recipes on facebook or instagram or apps that you can use to just order all the ingredients with just one click yep. and then and then prepare your meals yeah so. and it's good to see like the, the the growing trend of home delivery um food preparation services like blue apron um they pretty much always, you know, make it pretty easy to have vegan choices if that's your preference. Um, so it's it's very, you know, very accessible now, which is which is great. Yeah, but well, you've been doing this for a long time, and you've been in business for a long time. And since we're kind of getting towards the end of this interview, I'm just gonna go sure. and ask you about one challenge that you'd like to share, whether it's personal in relation to being vegan or something that you've uh, faced and had to overcome in business? Well, I think um, just, a, just a challenge in general that I think we all have today is, is one of focus. You know, we, we're, we're living in very exciting times when you have literally the world's information at your fingertips at any time, anywhere. Um, but we have so many things 
coming at us from so many different directions and so much access to information now that I think um, it's very easy to kind of lose the art of quiet, to lose, you know, the ability to focus on one thing for a, 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 a considered period of time without stopping to check messages or, or get distracted. And, and so I think um, a personal challenge and something that I work on every day personally is to try to um, be able to be more, you know, in the moment, more focused, sit down at a task and stick with it and not, you know, if in 10 minutes go, well, let me just see if there's any messages or let me just do this or do that. And I think that's, that's, um, a challenge. One thing that, um, has been very helpful to me that I've done also is I, I, I practice TM transcendental meditation. And I've done that since I was 15 years old. Um, so a long time. And, and I find that, that, you know, meditating every day is, is also very helpful in kind of, you know, finding that quiet and, and helping to be able to focus and, and things like that. So, um, I recommend that for anyone who, who hasn't tried meditation. Yeah, definitely. And since this, this is something that helps you overcome challenges, what is it that drives and motivates you? I think creativity. I mean, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, I always um, consider myself a creative person. I write every day. Um, in my work, I find it to be very creative, the things that I do. And I think the um, the feeling I get when I'm doing something that's creative, and creative is not just limited to the creative arts, but, you know, negotiating a, a good deal is, create, is being creative, you know. Um, helping uh, someone who works with you succeed is being creative. You know, there's there's so many different ways to keep you um, thinking creatively, um, and I think I enjoy that feeling. No matter what the source, of the, you know, no matter what the activity is, I enjoy that that feeling of action and activity. And I think that that that's what uh, um, keeps me motivated. And just just um, I enjoy thinking. <laughs> yeah. Speaking yeah. of writing um if anyone wants to read more from jeff he's got this blog called sassholes i don't know if you <laughs> update it very often or not but you've got some nice pieces there yeah i have not been um updating dating my blog as much as i used to and i and i also for many years when my kids were younger i was kind of a, a dad blogger at a site called datamatic.com and i've got a few hundred good articles on fatherhood that are still up on that site and, um, you know, if you go to jeffreysass.com or jeffreysass.club, um, you can find out more about me than you'll ever need to know. And other writing samples and other links to various videos and other things are, are available there. Yeah. And, so, of course, if you're interested in a dot .club domain name, visit www.get.club. And uh, if I can help you with anything, just let me know. Awesome. Now, if we want to close this off with just one thing that you would advise yourself at a younger age or anyone who wants to follow in your business footsteps besides starting to meditate of course i you know every decision you make is the right decision because you know it's easy to look back it's hard to look forward so i wouldn't i wouldn't really i'm very happy with where i am today and could i have done this differently or that differently could have i lost more weight, made more money, whatever. Um, sure. But I'm happy where I am. So I, and, and I have wonderful kids and wonderful families and friends. So I don't know that I would tell my, my younger self to necessarily change anything. I think the one bit, bit of advice uh, that I would say is, you know, everyone always tells you, you know, follow your passion, follow your passion. And I think that that's actually somewhat disingenuous because you, you can't in, in a practical world you're not always able to follow your passion or or find your career but i think what you are always able to do is to find something to be passionate about in what you are doing and i think the people who are happiest uh, in any career path are those who can find something to love about what they do and and do it well whatever that is so it doesn't matter whether you're you know collecting tolls on a highway or you're a physician or whatever your job is, you, you need to, every, everyone has in their jobs things that they don't like and things they're not happy with because you know it's always a trade-off because you're trying to earn a living. But you need to find that one thing you know, that you can be passionate about. Um, and the example I always give in my career, you know, and I'm, I'm writing, a, almost done with it, a, a book about uh, called Everything I Know About Business and Marketing I Learned from the Toxic Avenger, which is, um, 
um, marketing lessons I learned when I worked in making these low budget movies. And I think what I learned there is, you know, I was I was making these these essentially crappy low budget action horror films, and they weren't my cup of tea as a movie. Like I wasn't a huge fan of those films. But when I went to work there, I became a fan of the process of making movies. And I also recognized that if, even though I wasn't necessarily a fan of these movies, there were lots of people who were. You know, there were people, the movies we were making, people loved them. And I became passionate about serving those fans. So even if I wasn't making movies that were my particular taste, I could uh, respect and understand the fact that there was an audience for these films. And I was serving them by making the kinds of movies that they wanted to see. And I became very passionate about that. So, and I succeeded in that field because I, I had that passion and I could work really hard because I was passionate about serving those fans. So you have to find the thing, you know, so it wasn't, I didn't make those movies because I loved those movies. I made those movies because I loved serving the fans of those movies, right? So I think you can always find something to be passionate about, about whatever position you're in. And if you find that, You'll be more successful, you'll be happier, and then as you move through your career, you'll get closer and closer to that perfect match when you truly are you know, making money doing something you love. I think that's a great takeaway because I think so many people right now are focused on what you said at the beginning, just doing what they're passionate about, and they're either chasing after that without really knowing what it is or without having an actual plan of what they're going to be doing. So um, if instead you just find something that excites you, find something that makes you passionate about what you are working on right now, that's a really good path to, to actually finding yeah. your true passion. Yes. And if you know what you enjoy doing, you can almost always find ways to work that into whatever job you have, you know, especially now. You know, if you're a good photographer and you like taking pictures, almost any company, no matter what you work for, if they have a social media presence, they could actually use someone who can take good pictures. And it might not be part of your job description, but maybe nights and weekends you can help out by taking some great photography that your company can use in its social media channels. Or if you're a videographer or, or whatever your your hobbies might be. So there are many opportunities today also to to not necessarily get it as your primary job, but find ways to work something you love into what you do. I love to write. I've been writing my whole career and every job I've ever had, regardless of what the job description was, I always found ways to make writing part of it, whether it's writing blog posts for the company blog or writing marketing copy or, or whatever it may be. You know, you can always do that. So it's two sides of the coin. Find something that you are can be passionate about with your job and then find ways to weave your passions into what you do. Excellent. Excellent. So final question, Jeff, since this this podcast is about plan-based future, what, in your opinion, are the next big things coming for us as a race and where where are we headed? What is our future? Well, at this particular um, time, uh, in particular, it's a, it's a tough time to answer that question because there's so many, um, you know, without getting political, there's so many um, unusual and interesting things going on in the world right now. I mean, I think from a from a plant-based perspective, I think the future is very bright. I think the the uh, convergence of technology and and the plant-based foods has been very exciting. You know, when you have these choices now. And and granted, you know, the goal is not to everything shouldn't have look and taste and feel like meat on the one hand. But on the other hand, if you want to have a large number of people sort of uh, jumping over to our side of the fence, so to speak, um, for environmental and, and other reasons, um, making things more palatable for them is, is going to make that happen faster. So it is exciting to see things being done by companies like Beyond Meat and others who are, are really making advances in, in some of these, you know, um, vegan protein products. Um, and I think just the, the widespread availability, as I mentioned earlier, being able to go into the regular supermarkets and still find many plant-based choices, I think bodes well for the future. So I don't, I think, you know, just as today, it's not as unusual to be vegetarian or vegan as it was when I may have started 27 years ago. You know, 
27 years from now, I don't think, you know, people will be thinking twice about it. And it'll probably be a large percentage of the population that's following a plant-based diet for lots of different reasons. Yeah. And I think 27 years from now, it's actually going to be more common for people to go into a restaurant and, you know, quietly tell the waiter that, hey, I, I kind of still eat meat. So if, if your <laughs> chef can maybe whip something out for me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Go back and kill something. <laughs> all right. Great. Jeff, it has been great talking to you. Thank you for sharing all your nuggets of wisdom here. Hey, I don't know if it's wisdom, but they were certainly nuggets. <laughs> I was <you>. definitely wisdom. <laughs> I, I think that the listeners definitely got a lot from you, both about business and how to just steer their life. And of course, how to go about eating as a vegan in completely non-vegan establishments. Yep. So. Yeah, well, it's the advantage of being old. I've been around the block a few times. You pick up a few things along the way. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing that. Great. Thanks, Jerry. Have Thanks so much Monday. for having me. Bye-bye. Thanks, you too. And that was Jeffrey Sass on episode 17 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. And it was definitely great to hear his experience and his lessons about business and about being vegan. And of course, how you can approach anything that you do from a point of passion. Because that for me was definitely one of the biggest takeaways of this episode. Now, if you want to know more about Jeff or any of the things that we mentioned here, all the show notes are available on the plantbasedentrepreneur.com slash show slash episode 017. And this website is also where you can join our community of plant-based insiders. So I will keep you updated on all the new episodes coming out and also about cool new things that are happening in the industry. As always, if you have any questions or suggestions about the show or anything else, really, you can always contact me on jerry at theplantbasedentrepreneur.com or follow The Plant-Based Entrepreneur on Twitter or on Instagram. So I'll be back again next week with another episode. Until then, stay awesome and remember, future is plant-based.